I am. I am. I am swinging from a seven-story window, throwing parties in a ten by seven cell. It's a standing the legs I'll go to convince the whole damn world I don't need anybody's help. Yeah, I am. Put down your pens, put down your pencils, step away from the keyboards and settle in for this week's episode of Writer's Block. First and foremost, allow me to thank Low Tide Kava Bar for the kava that I'm drinking on today's episode. Bula Banaka. Also, allow me to thank Muddied Waters Media for allowing me to do this program. And Don and Sally Wright, thank you for giving birth to me because, well, as a Matthew, I am a gift from God. Uh, I am very pleased to announce that I am bringing on another gift from God today. Matthew Hurt, the Director of External Relationships for the Grassroots Leadership Academy, which is the training arm of, uh, for uh, the Americans for Prosperity Foundation. Matthew, how are you doing today? Doing great. Uh, happy to be on, and, and again, happy to not have to remember another name, being a, a fellow <laughs> Matthew. Really excited about the opportunity to uh, to chat with you today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, you went to Middle Tennessee State University, which is located in beautiful Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Yes, I actually studied uh, history and political science with a minor in secondary education and always wanted to this is this will be important for later in the show i always wanted to be a high school history teacher uh until ultimately my education professors warned me about the uh, uh, uh the bureaucracy that was public education <laughs> and that i would be frustrated in that system and, and ultimately took another direction Huh. That's that's actually uh, pretty interesting because when I was first going when I first went to school at George Mason University, one of the things I wanted to do was become a history teacher, and then quickly I decided I don't want to work in the public education system. 
Um, so I went a completely different route. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things, uh, you know, ultimately, as we talk about over, over the, the course of this episode, what it is that I do, I actually find myself in classrooms and training opportunities with people who want to be there, uh, who are engaged in the in the process that is this American Republic uh, and and who who have a vision of what it means to be truly free. So it's really cool. I actually all of all of the secondary education skills that I learned at Middle Tennessee State University, I have uh, applied over the last 10 years in in activism, promoting the cause of of free societies and, and freedom and opportunity. Excellent. Yeah. No, uh, I've, as you and I met at uh, the Yale conference in Reston, Virginia, uh, a couple months back. Um, and uh, I st- we started talking and, you know, I found out you were from Tennessee. I used to live in Nashville, as you know. And so I know a ton of people that went to uh, Mitsu, as they call it. Um, and uh a lot of really, a lot of really good people. A lot of really good uh, libertarian thinking people, freedom loving people, seem to have gone there. But at the same time, I know a lot of people who went very far left out of there, um, which I'm imagining would be most schools. But Middle Tennessee seems to have matriculated numerous people who are pretty freedom loving, and I've always respected that about that school. Well, you know, and and two of the cool things, two of the the most notable things uh, that have that have been produced at, at Middle Tennessee State University is one economist James Buchanan uh, is a graduate of Middle Tennessee State University, uh, famous for public choice theory. Uh, actually, very very close with uh, with the George Mason campus up in Northern Virginia. The 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 legacy that he left in the field of economics is is felt there. And in fact, as of the fall um, 2018 semester at Middle Tennessee State University, they now have a political economy research institute, which was established uh, with a grant from um, from the Charles Koch Foundation, uh, which which I'm certain that we'll we'll talk about throughout the course of this podcast. And and the the head of that is a professor named um, Daniel Smith, who comes to us from uh, from Michigan, but I, I met him a, a couple of months back, and he said his first introduction to to freedom and to opportunity when was when he received a copy of the law uh, from somebody at the Foundation for Economic Education. And so it's 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 fascinating how not only how impressive um, the the product of liberty is at at Middle Tennessee State University, but also how connected. Uh, I am to uh, to that experience. You know, I when I was when I was 19 and still living outside Nashville, I ran for local office and I I met a guy on the on the campaign trail who um, who gave me a copy of the law, uh, and that was the first my first interaction with with something that was tangible, uh, and it really informed and solidified what it was that I believe about the proper role of government. Yeah, um, the. When I was living in Tennessee, I was um, I was not as involved in the freedom movement as I was after I left Tennessee. Uh, when I was in, I was living, you know, in Nashville proper, and that meant that I was um, drinking heavily, and because uh, I think that's all you really do in Nashville. <laughs> um, 
anytime I like, I, you know, like as many people know, I quit drinking uh, four and a half years ago now. Um, but anytime I go back to Nashville, like all my friends are like, let's meet up at a bar. I'm like, uh, I don't really do that. But once I got out, um, once I got out of Nashville and I came down here to Florida, um, I got a copy of the law and read it for the very first time, which was weird being my age. And that was when things started coming. A lot of things started coming together for me. Uh, all of my political ideals that I knew I believed in started to make even more sense. And I was able to uh, discuss them a lot better after reading that. Yeah. And, and, and I agree there, there was, there was always something um, uh, in my philosophy that, that I said, uh, if, if the choice is between um, control or centralized planning or government power and the people decide, I, I have always had more faith in the people. And, and really to, to read that, and it's such an easy read. It's, it's you know, I, at the time that I read it the first time, I was working at a bookstore in Murfreesboro and uh, between customers at the cash register, I would read and highlight important passages. And I, I found that I had highlighted almost the entire book. Um, and so, you know, there, there are folks here in, in Murfreesboro, actually where I am now for the for celebrating the, the Christmas holiday, uh, who still give out copies of the law. And now in my professional capacity, at the Grassroots Leadership Academy, uh, we also give out copies of the law. It's one of those things that is, you know, a lot of people say, you know, what, what really informed your ideas around, around liberty or even libertarianism. And some people say Ayn Rand. And, and, and I personally just think that it's, it's tough to get through a lot of her writing. Uh, and for the, for the average person, um, for the person who isn't steeped in, in political philosophy, and I, and I don't blame them for not being, um, the law is really a digestible. You can read it in an hour or two. It's only about 60 pages. Uh, and, and the concepts are, are really tangible in a way that that even even some fiction like like Rand and others uh, just doesn't provide. Yeah, I was going to say with uh, with Rand, with Ayn Rand, um, her fiction work, I agree, it's very difficult to get through. But her personal essays like The New Left um, I really enjoyed that book because I could get through those essays and it wasn't it wasn't the chore of trying to get to the John Galt speech, which it turns out to be the speech is 60 pages or whatever it is, um, which, you know, all of it is very, very detailed and very and it drags on and it's got a lot of great information in it. But her essays were Sure, they're, I mean, they're, st they're the same way, but they're shorter, they're to the point, and each essay kind of focuses more on one issue. Um, and, and they provide, I, I would say, greater historical context to, the, to, to where she is in her belief system. Right. And, and so to that end, I think, I think the nonfiction side or the, uh, the more autobiographical or explanatory stuff is, is probably more beneficial. It's like I love, I love Stephen King and I love Stephen King's fiction. But Stephen King on writing is also fantastic on, on, on really how to flesh out those ideas. And, and it, it, so it's, 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 it's fascinating to be able to get in. And especially now in this day and age where, where we have where you have Audible and you have podcasts, uh, I travel a lot for the Grassroots Leadership Academy. And if I'm on a plane or I'm in a rental car somewhere, uh, I'm listening to a podcast. So I'll just download an audio book and, and a book that's a thousand pages that, that I wouldn't have the attention span for, you know, to read it cover to cover hard copy. 
uh, I can get through and listen to a couple of times. So it's, it's, it's really great to be exposed to these ideas. And, and I think a lot of people are coming to these ideas almost by accident. You know, people find, people find a video, um, you know, a, a reason video online, or they find a podcast like this one, uh, or they, they stumble upon an article that, that is, you know, shows them a different side of an issue that they're trying to formulate an opinion on. And we've really democratized um, knowledge by by having, you know, social media and, and, and access widespread access to to, I guess, the collected wisdom of the ages through through our smartphones and through the Internet. Absolutely. When with, with places like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and, you know, just all the different social media sites, you know, you, you may click on a video of, um, I don't know, somebody slipping on the ice and falling. That's really funny. And then it auto plays to the next video and suddenly you fall into like a Ben Shapiro hole and you're watching Ben Shapiro talking to college kids. And then next thing you know, you're like, wait, what is this tiny little Jewish guy talking about? And then you start researching more and then you find your Steven Crowders and then you find, you know, us, obviously the muddied waters of freedom. Um, you find the mighty waters of freedom. And then from there you start looking into the different groups and that's when you find fee and the Mises Institute and the grassroots leadership Academy and, uh, the Americans for prosperity foundation. And all of a sudden you're beginning to learn all about the freedoms on your own, as opposed to just being told what to think you're actually learning and researching on your, on your own time, because it's what you're now deciding you love. And and not only that, but also, you know, people who are being exposed to, to these ideas, even when they don't realize it, there there's some really cool things happening. Um, and, and especially as I know we, we get into talking about messaging here uh, uh, in this podcast is is something like something as simple as Mike. Rowe. So Mike Rowe has a, a, a show on Facebook. It is and it's in its I think it's now two seasons in called Returning the Favor. Right. And it's essentially, you know, Roe and his team find do-gooders in these communities that are really, you know, taking on the responsibility that for many years people have said government should do this. And where government has failed, um, you know, Mike has found these folks who are who are improving their community and and showcasing that, uh, you know, showcasing their success. And that's something where. You know, you think about think about the average American who watches a couple hours of television. Maybe they have a uh, a drama they they like or a show they like. If they find something like this and they say, "Oh wow, there are good people, there are good people in the world who are advancing essentially free societies, maybe even without knowing it," and and they're doing good and they're helping others. You know, why don't we have more of this? And it really creates this 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 atmosphere of. Um, uh, it, it building up the, the the idea of the American experiment, but also the notion of self-reliance and and working within the communities to advance opportunity rather than relying on a central planner. Right. I mean, I call I've been recently uh, as of this year, I've been calling that the dominoes effect where, uh, you know, dominoes is going around and fixing the potholes for people uh, because the cities can't get to it. And it's because we don't need the government to do these things. Instead, we have private businesses or private individuals who are going around and doing it out of the goodness of their own heart. Now, granted, Domino's is probably doing it mostly for publicity, but it is an answer to the issues. Well, and, and you know, I, I always tell people there is a range of, um, 
of reasons people do things. So if you look at the range, it is so uh, a left right spectrum. You may say altruism on the right side, and that's doing things out of the good of your heart. And on the left side, you have uh, greed or self-interest. And everyone operates somewhere along uh, along that spectrum. And 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 I'm not going to. Um, you know, I'm not going to necessarily denigrate someone or a company or an entity that does something knowing that they're going to receive uh, good publicity in return because we want it's almost Pavlovian in the sense that um, we want good actions to be rewarded. And, and as we you know, we may dig into this, but the criminal justice system, you think about this, um, you know, rewarding inmates who are in the system for good behavior for, for uh, you know, improving their lives. And so, you know, we really do respond to that positive stimuli or, or whatever you call it. Uh, and I think, I think showcasing that or rewarding it is really beneficial and it creates more opportunities to engage in that, which, which as we may get into is, is what I call and what my network, the network that I work for calls virtuous cycles of self-improvement. Um, and, and it's where when, when you, Matt, or me, or you know, my sister, who is a, a hairstylist. When we improve our lives, um, then then we're able to go out and improve the lives of those in our communities. And so, it's a really cool thing to see um, as we talk about free societies and what it looks like to um, to minimize people's the, the 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 barriers that stand in people's way from achieving their potential. Right, and and by no in. Just to clarify, by no way was I trying to denigrate Domino's for doing that just for the publicity or anything like that. Since they started doing that, they're basically the only pizza place I go to because of what they're giving back to a community. Uh, oh, certainly. And, 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 and I wasn't, definitely wasn't calling out for it. But, but if you think about it, a couple of years ago as well, um, after one of the big tsunamis in, uh, in the Pacific, Coca-Cola – uh, suspended its ad budget. It was, I think, a couple million dollars. They sus- suspended their South Asian and Pacific ad budget and instead diverted those resources to um, to providing bottles of water in in folks in the affected area. And certainly, certainly, there was a there was a financial incentive for them to do so. But it also improved the lives of the people in the affected area. Absolutely. And so you know, we look at this, and people say, you know, Milton Friedman. Um, was a was a proponent that greed is good. And if you think about it, in both of those actions, both Domino's and Coca-Cola, you could say they were greedy in the sense that they knew the direct payoff for engaging in that activity, but it also directly positively impacted the lives of uh, uh, of those who who encountered that. So definitely those who who uh, were victims of the tsunami and also those people who were just it is it is in Domino's best interest that their delivery drivers can get to your home without hitting a pothole and flattening a tire. Exactly. Um, so and, and, and in turn, that is improving our community. Something as simple as filling a pothole when when the government fails. You know, we joke and especially libertarians joke, you know, who will build the roads? Um, but but even when government fails in, in their promise to maintain and upkeep those roads, we see that there are ways to do and provide that. And it's really cool. Uh, I think we, we are in an unprecedented period of time where access to information, where access to capital, so actually being able to, to fund or finance or engage in this activity and the willingness of people to, to step out and do something good. Uh, I, I think we're, we're in a period of time where all of those are aligned and we really have an opportunity 
to improve ourselves and our communities um, without and, and not not as not as overtly as saying I'm doing this because the government won't. But 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 in a sense, stepping in unwittingly or or unknowingly and providing those uh, uh, those goods, those services, those opportunities without government permission and without that, uh, you know, that oversight. And, you know, any as people who are freedom loving people, libertarian leaning, conservative, whatever, even even if you go as far as my co-host Spike, you know, anarchist, uh, we don't need government. Um the fact that people get together and are doing these things without government intervention or without government force just shows that, yes, these things still can be accomplished even without government saying this needs to happen or stealing money from us in order to do these projects, which take too long and cost too much. And and it bolsters the notion that, that Adam Smith wrote about in Wealth of Nations, that there is this invisible hand uh, that that guides economic activity because what you'll see, what you'll see is those resources are diverted. So if we have, um, for instance, you know um, the hurricanes that hit the the Gulf Coast over the summer and in the right. last couple of years, we see people contributing money or working through their churches or diverting resources. So so those those opportunities still exist, and there doesn't have to be someone out of Washington. Who you know, as, as as Hayek wrote, who decides how many pigs are to be slaughtered, or how many shoes are to be made, um, or or what prices they should be set at? Because because we decide that as consumers, or we decide that as people diverting those those resources. We've seen in the last couple of weeks, um, celebrities, people like Kid Rock and a few others, who have gone to Walmart and paid off the layaway. You know, every everything that, right. that you know, a couple hundred customers have put on layaway for Christmas. And certainly they get good, good press out of it. You couldn't you couldn't hire a better press team for like a Kid Rock um, to say, you know what, you should go spend thirty thousand dollars to pay off 400 people's um, layaway, you know, layaway purchases at Walmart. That's that's a drop in the bucket for his income and it provides him good publicity. But it it, it dramatically improves the lives of hundreds of people who perhaps didn't know where that money was going to come from right. or could have done, you know, wish they could have done a little bit more for their children around Christmas. And so, or freed up their capital to go and, and do well for others. We constantly hear, especially this time of year, people leaving large tips at restaurants or people paying for the meal of the person behind them in the drive drive through line. And, and, and all of those things are, are certainly they're small acts of kindness, but they're acts that improve improve the lives and well-being of the people not only of the person who engages in it but of the people around us yeah and so uh you're from tennessee so i i don't want to get this wrong but i believe brad paisley i could be wrong on the countries i'm not a big country guy uh i believe brad paisley and his wife kimberly williams uh from uh the Bride movie with Steve Martin. Um, they are opening a food bank for the less fortunate in Nashville where it's like a free grocery store. Um, but they're setting it up as a grocery store. So that way when you go with your children, it's like you're going to a grocery store as opposed to you're going to get you know your free donations to give the people, to help people out who actually need it, as well as give them some sort of dignity while doing it. Oh yeah, and 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 sure enough, yeah, they have. And the, I think the first story was in October of this year about this. It, it's uh, 
it's called, if you give me just a moment, um, I think it's just called the store. But but as you talk about, you know, providing services and especially um, especially food donations, um, providing that dignity. And, and it's something as simple. You, you touched on it. Something as simple as a family being able to walk into a grocery store that looks and feels like a grocery store that doesn't look and feel like a like a bread line um, is is one of those small acts that uh, that allows people slowly and surely to improve their lives. So it's it's really cool um, to see this kind of thing. And and people are doing it again, a mixture of altruism or the goodness of their own heart or, or self-interest and greed for a long time. Um, and, and, and still today, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, more, the Mormon Church, has provided these sort of food storehouses for their membership. And even for people who aren't Mormons, um, who fall on hard times. And so we see that. And, 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 and to sort of drive us in the direction of, of, that to- of the topic of conversation is, is to look at this and say, how can we message, how can we talk about breaking down the barriers that we have, be they internal or external barriers, a lot of times external barriers are, are, uh, are government imposed. Internal barriers are things like education and confidence and your capacity to go, to go out and accomplish on your own or, or with some help. And so how do, we, how do we empower people to break down those barriers that allows them to improve their lives, which then in turn allows them to improve the lives of others in their community? Uh, and I think that is something where, like, I'm the, you know, the there's a joke about two children, uh, two, you put two children in separate rooms, and, and one is the eternal pessimist, and that kid has a bunch of broken toys in the room, and, and the other is the eternal optimist, and he's in this room just playing around in horse manure. And, you know, when confronted or asked why he's so happy to be in, in the room full of horse manure, the eternal optimist says, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. And uh, and I'm that kid because I think even in, you know, sometimes the headlines aren't that great. I think we're at a we're at a time where more and more people are realizing they can improve their lives and improve the lives of others um, and really engage in what uh, what the Grassroots Leadership Academy uh, and what Americans for Prosperity Foundation is calling this free society where people improve their lives and improve the lives of others. And in turn, we create a society of mutual benefit. Yeah. So getting um, getting to the message, getting to the messaging aspect, which uh, is which is what you're what you're, you've been working on, what you've been doing best. And like, that's all we talked about when we uh, were across each other at booths uh, at the Yale conference. Um, when it comes to messaging, what is the what is the best way for people to message liberty? Because when you look on the internet, when you look on social media, you look on the Facebooks, the Twitters, the way that, at least I perceive it, the way that most people are messaging liberty doesn't come off as anything anybody else would ever want. Because we're all aggressive, we're all angry, we're all uh, going after the person, trying to insult their intelligence and act like they aren't as well-read as us, which... 95% 95% of the time is probably true, but again, that's not going to be helping out with the messaging of, uh, the messaging of Liberty. So what is it that we need to focus on? So uh, a lot of what, what I talk about, and especially as we, uh, as we figure out how to, um, 
have these conversations. You know, we, we, we are, we are on the heels of, uh, you know, just a month ago, we celebrated Thanksgiving where many of your listeners spent time with their families, uh, over, over dinner. Undoubtedly, they had that liberal aunt who vote, who still has her Obama 2008 bumper sticker or that, that Trump supporting uncle. And, and we, uh, we talk about it. We, we fear it. We, we, we anticipate that it's coming those political discussions at the at the dinner table at Thanksgiving or even at Christmas. And I think that that what is indicative of that is many people don't think about high level political philosophy. Um, You know, when you when you talk about lowering tax rates, when you talk about the the trade deficit, when you talk about the, the budget deficit or whatever the issues are, most people don't make a personal connection uh, to those issues, because a lot of, especially at the federal level, a lot of the policy stuff is esoteric. Chris Christie, former New Jersey uh, New Jersey governor, got it right. He he attacked uh, in the in the 2016 Republican primary. He went after Kentucky Senator Rand Paul for talking about libertarian ideas in sort of the ether in in this esoteric conversation about liberty. And unfortunately for us, for those who are at who who spend a lot of their time advocating for liberty, we are sort of in the ether. We are sort of communicating uh, those esoteric ideas. What we have to do is find out where those ideas interact with people um, in their daily lives. And so what it lo- what does it look like? Um, it looks like a small business owner trying to launch a new business. It looks like parents trying to homeschool their children or trying to pull their kids out of a failing system. It looks like a a young person, you know, millennials are, are, are sometimes derided as the want it now generation. Uh, but it looks like a millennial trying to create that next app that makes our lives simpler and better um, for for less. And all of these opportunities, um, you know, it, during the height of the of the, the conversation over the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act it, earlier this year, earlier in 2018, um, the Nancy Pelosi said that it was just crumbs what the tax re- what the tax uh, reform would provide for the average American. And at the time, the average, <coughs> excuse me, the average American would receive uh, about $1,000 more in, in the calendar year in 2018 if the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passed. And so the way I made that real for activists across the country as I was talking about it is I said, what would you do with 88 more dollars a month? And and people really like I look at my paycheck uh, every two weeks and I say, you know, what more can I can I put into retirement? Uh, What more can I put into maybe my health savings account? And when you ask someone point blank, what would you do with eighty eight more dollars a month? You get a lot of really great answers. You get I would pay more on my mortgage. I would plan uh, better for retirement. I would take my family out to a nice dinner. I would save for a summer vacation. And so you really make that policy um, tangible and real. During the, during the conversation about Obamacare, really for the last eight years, um, the, the Affordable Care Act, um, it, it was most real when people went out to their mailboxes and they got a letter from Blue Cross Blue Shield or from Aetna or whomever saying their rate was was being increased or their plan was being canceled altogether. Right. So so, you know, 98 uh, percent of Americans are just trying to put food on the table. They're trying to make ends meet. 
They're trying to get their kids to soccer practice on time. They are not thinking about 2,700 pages of, of health care. And so t- to make it, to communicate liberty in a way that's real and meaningful, we have to talk about it um, where it really hits the pocketbook or where it really impacts them on a daily basis. For instance, I, I work, my head, our, our national headquarters is in Arlington, Virginia. And a couple of years ago, uh, there's a lot of really great food trucks out near um, out near our office that park during the lunch hour. And I love food trucks. It's really cool. I can try, you know, food that I never would have been uh, never would have had the access to with normal brick and mortar in the neighborhood. And the trucks are different every day and they communicate on social media which trucks are going to be there. And the restaurant association in that neighborhood, feeling the pinch from the food trucks, feeling the increased competition banded together and hired a lobbyist and attempted to get those food trucks banned. Uh, and so if I were just, if I were a normal human being, uh, which I'm not, and people who, people who are engaged in the fight for liberty on a daily basis in an official capacity are weirdos. Um, with all due respect to you and to the listeners, we're weird. Um, but if I had just been, you know, a guy working in an office building in that neighborhood and all of a sudden the food trucks disappeared, I would wonder what the heck was going on. Uh, and if I was if I was so compelled uh, and so upset by it, I might organize my neighbors and figure out, you know, how we could bring them back. Right. And so, you know, looking for those opportunities to um, where where it really impacts someone in their daily lives. I would say the second thing is um, is understanding that no matter where you are on the political spectrum, if you are a Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez socialist or you are a a, a Ron Paul libertarian, or you are a Tom Cotton, um, you know, neoconservative, there, there are issues, there, there is at least one issue where you can find agreement on with almost anybody. I, I, and, and what I do in my conversations with people left, right, and center is I try to find an issue where we agree first, because that allows us to build trust. It allows us to understand that we are both operating in good faith, that, that most people who want to solve these problems um, are doing it, they're operating in good faith the best way they know how. Unfortunately, we just agree on the path to get there. You know, people who believe in, in more government think that there are benevolent people in government who want to take care of us, and if we institute this program, it shall be so. And, and, and I don't believe that. And I think that people working in their communities in their private capacity are, are the best drivers for so social progress and, 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 and improving the lives of others. And so, you know, sitting down and finding that opportunity um, where you do agree and then building out from there is, is, is a great way to start the conversation. Right. Like, so with um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, recently, now that we're in this government shutdown and somehow everything is still moving ahead in this country and everything's fine, um, even with no government, currently running uh she said next time we do a government shutdown i believe that the congress people's uh paycheck should be furloughed that'd be a great place for me to start with her because at least and on I, that i can agree and and i think and i've seen that you know i'm as someone who is i'm i'm scrolling facebook uh during the holidays um i've seen that a lot and i've seen a lot of conservatives or a lot of people who consider themselves uh on the right side of the of the political spectrum uh, who have who have been shocked that, that they agree. And I think it's it's funny. It's funny that um, a lot of times uh, people say that they're shocked. But if we really if we did it more often, if we listen to people with whom we don't agree more often, 
we would be less shocked that we actually do agree on more issues uh, than than places where we disagree. I think there are people who get um, who benefit from dividing uh, dividing us, and and there is a there is a tribalism that is perpetuated by by the the two party system um, that is that is sometimes it's, it's not particularly beneficial to having those conversations. You know, there is there is no benefit to a Republican Party entity um, for a Democrat to vote for one of their uh, for an initiative. Likewise, there's no um, there's no incentive for a Democrat elected official to work closely with the Republicans to advance some goal because there's no reward in that. They don't get it doesn't bring them closer to reelection. It doesn't raise them more money. It, uh, it, it gets them in this in this realm of being called moderates or squishes or sellouts or establishment. And and and, um, and and so they are dissuaded from working together just by the nature of the of the, the party structure and that process. And so I think if people sat down with people they they disagreed with more often, we would find out that we actually have more in common than we realize. And we all want to solve um, solve the problems that our communities face. You know, I worked on a on a campaign for city council in Washington, D.C. a number of years ago. And it was a it was a Democrat candidate for city council who was, quite frankly, more conservative than the Republican candidate. Uh, And it was it is it is in northeast D.C., which is a large African-American population. And as I went door to door, everyone who invited me into their home, almost without exception, had a had portraits of um, Martin Luther King, Jr., Malcolm X and Barack Obama prominently displayed in their living rooms. That is not and, and that is not a culture that I I grew up knowing, but every single person I spoke really, to from, who from, had, from rural Murfreesboro, Tennessee, you didn't grow up with that yeah. culture? <laughs> no, not not at all, but 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 everyone I spoke to wanted three things. They wanted good schools, they wanted safe streets, and they wanted economic opportunity. And when I tell that to activists at Americans for Prosperity Foundation events or Grassroots Leadership Academy trainings, there's almost a you can hear the jaws hit the floor because because they understand, wow, those individuals with whom I have little in common uh, want the same thing that I want. Uh, they just, by and large, in many instances, believe there's a different way to get there. So being able to sit down and hash those issues out on an individual basis without the without the, the scrolling cry on of Fox News or CNN or MSNBC and without the shouting talking head of Lawrence O'Donnell or Rachel Maddow or Sean Hannity, um, we really find that there are broader areas of agreement than, than we previously understood. Which, yes, that that is the one thing that I always, whenever I do the family get together, which I don't actually get a lot of opportunities to do anymore because we're all spread out. Um, typically I try to find the one area that we can all agree on. Unfortunately, we are spread out on the spectrum. We go from the far, far left to the neocon right and everywhere else in between. Um, so it's very hard to find the one thing that everybody agrees on. So typically what I find that I do is I typically, I'll, I'll team up with somebody at the table and I'll agree with them on something just to defend them because I can defend their point. So like with uh, my little sister, who's very far left, uh, she's very anti-war. My, my older sister and my dad are neocons. So, you know, they're, you know, we should bomb them all, blow it all up. And so my little sister isn't great at defending 
her points very well, but I know how to. So then I'll team up with her on that, where she's also very pro uh, universal health care. And I know the opposite side of that. So since they can't argue their point that well without being insulting, I guess would be the best way to put it. I'll team up with them just to ease that conversation, just to make it a little bit more palatable for her so she doesn't feel like she's being attacked. As opposed to like when I went anti-war on my own and uh, I was told that I was going to get punched in the face if I kept going. I was like, well, that's that's very peaceful of you. Um, but the messaging aspect of... The messaging aspect of the Libertarian Party, of not just the Libertarian Party, but just liberty in general, which often does get muddled with the Libertarian Party, gets so convoluted because we have so many issues with people out there saying that they believe in liberty, but only in the instances where it really matters to them. There's no cohesive answer for what is liberty and what is not liberty. Now, granted... You and I probably look at it as, you know, the individual. Well, I know I do. I'm not going to speak for you. I apologize for that. Uh, the individual is the smallest minority. And as long as me, as an individual, am not harming anybody else or taking their property or hurting their property, whatever I do doesn't really matter. So each topic that I go to, I attempt to get it back to that basic principle. Would you say that that's the easy... Would, would that be the correct way to do it or am I misshooting? Well, I think that, that when talking about uh, philosophical consistency, you're probably at the closest place. Um, but there, you know, there are certainly people who, who maybe are interested in school choice. So they want what I would call educational anarchy. So anybody could, could provide any level of educational opportunity for any child, anytime. So it could be all homeschooling or parochial or charter or vouchers or whatever. But that person may vehemently disagree with, um, say, for instance, cannabis legalization or descheduling and, uh, because, because they believe there's a disproportionately negative impact on the, on the social fabric or, or, or what have you. And so certainly, the, and, and, and likewise, I'm sure there are people who think that 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 cannabis should be legalized or descheduled who wouldn't agree with uh, with educational opportunity and so i think that that a lot of those so many of those conversations are one-on-one in nature i don't think by and large that we can we can assert some philosophical consistency from a talking head on television right um and so it, it is up to people like you uh, people like me, programs like this, trainings like the Grassroots Leadership Academy, to do it either in in small doses or almost in a in a one on one setting. You know, um, all of your listeners listen to this show in their individual capacity, but you are communicating to an audience. But for some, there may be an understanding that you're communicating just to them. So I think I think things at at this level, um, at the community level, in our trainings and on programs like this. You're able to have a more in-depth or, or or intimate or familiar conversation about this, so that you can potentially change someone's mind or move them in the direction of supporting, you know, more freedom and more opportunity. Um, before the so before the show, you were uh, discuss we were discussing quickly uh, the I can't believe I didn't write this one down uh, the Koch Foundation grants. 
Yes. The Charles Koch grant. Now, what what is it that uh, they what is it that the grants do? Who who do who do the grants go to? So um, so there is a there is a broad network of um, of organizations, of entities, of donors that um, that look to improve uh, communities. Basically, there is a there's a firm belief that there are four key institutions in society and uh, and they are government, which has an outsized impact in our lives. Um, there is community. And so that could be churches or nonprofits or the family structure. Um, there is education, and that could be universities or K-12 or Khan Academy or Learn Liberty. Um, and then there's business. And across those four key institutions, um, the network that, that I'm employed in, um, sometimes colloquially called the Koch Network, um, there are there are two brothers, uh, Charles and David Koch. Uh, they are philanthropists and 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 businessmen. Um, you know, David is, uh, uh, is has been involved in New York City, um, in the community in New York City. He's he has donated to hospitals. He's donated to museums at the at the Natural History Museum in in Washington D.C. There is a David Koch uh, Hall of Human Achievement. Um, and so these individuals uh, really, really care. One, they're they're successful businessmen, and two, in their in that capacity, they are able to financially support entities and organizations which make our country great. And so things like hospitals, things like museums. Um, you know, we talk about those four key institutions: <clears throat> the Charles Koch Foundation uh, last year, or perhaps it was earlier this year teamed up with the United Negro College Fund to provide $50 million in scholarship opportunities for, um, for black recipients of the scholarships to study, to study business. And in, in, in part, if I understand it correctly, to study the way um, the philosophy of, of a lot of Coke Industries businesses, which is called market-based management, uh, which I think has is, is been a leading, leading philosophy that has allowed them to be so successful. So there's one. That is that is, um, you know, playing in the education realm that is providing financial support for um, for black students who who are recipients of United Negro College Fund grants or scholarships to go out and study business and economics. Um, There's an organization called Stand Together, which works in the community space. So we've talked about business. Now let's talk about community. One of the cool things uh, about Stand Together is they are basically. Um, almost a, a venture capital organization for nonprofits and charities. So they go out and find um, find those nonprofits, for instance, like the Phoenix Gyms, which I'll come back to in just a moment, um, to go out and improve to improve the community. And so they they are recipients of of grants and and, and contributions to that end. Um, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about Phoenix Gyms. Um, Phoenix Gym is a gym that is catered to recovering drug addicts. So if you've been sober for 48 hours, you can use Phoenix gyms for free. Um, and what they have done, what they've done throughout the country is, is, is we talk about how do we fight? And you know, one, of the, one of the national conversations now is the opioid academic, uh, epidemic and the opioid crisis. Right. So Phoenix gym in the community 
is finding these individuals and empowering them to shake that addiction and providing them with a healthy outlet to uh, to engage in those activities. And so uh, one of our partners, Stand Together, has provided financial support for that. Um, they're also <clears throat> one of the one of the latest recipients is something in, in Dallas called Cafe Momentum, uh, which is basically a, a, a restaurant that hires that you you take a one year internship as a young person who is currently going through the criminal justice system. So basically they take at-risk youth, they cycle them through a one-year internship where they get paid to work at this restaurant. They go through all the positions at the restaurant from cook to, to waiter to, to front, front of the house. Um, and it teaches them, one, it invests in their self-esteem, so an internal barrier. And two, it provides them hard skills to go out and be successful so they don't have to engage in criminal activity. So we've now talked about education uh, and community, and I think part of that ties into business. So right. providing financial support for businesses that are engaging in what uh, what Charles Koch calls as good profit. So a business operating um, in its in, in working in the best interest of the people. This is this creating a society of mutual benefit where you create a good product that people want, and people buy that product because it's a good product that they want. And, and, and so all of that sort of trickles out into the, the, into the broader society where then unfortunately for, uh, for many of us, it, it encounters the, the firm hand of government. And to the, end, to, the, to, the, to the extent that we're engaged in, in donations that, that change that aspect, I think a lot of that is handled through Americans for Prosperity, our sister organization, which attempts to change public policy. Uh, and so you see that there there are um, there are institutions established on campuses like the one at Middle Tennessee State University, the Political Economy Research Institute. There are scholarship funds that are established. There are donations to museums and hospitals. There are um, investments in community organizations, and all of these all of these things taken, uh, if you step back and look at all of them together, show a an investment in advancing a community where people benefit by benefiting others, where breaking down internal and external barriers allows us to engage in, in what I mentioned earlier as virtuous cycles of, of, uh, of mutual benefit where you improve your life. And when you do that, you can improve the lives of others around you. So recently, I know one of the things that uh, the Koch brothers care about uh, a lot uh, is – uh, criminal justice reform, which thanks to people like Kanye West, Jared Kushner, uh, Rand Paul, Cory Booker, uh, that's been kind of in the news recently. We've recently gotten criminal justice reform signed uh, by the president. Um, but on the lower grassroots end scale, I know that the Koch brothers have con have consistently uh, been fighting for it on themselves for them on their own. Um, they've been going with. Um, they took away the box. What was the, I can't remember what the yeah, name. Yeah, was ban, ban the box. Ban the box. That was what it was called. Uh, so, so, yeah, absolutely. So, so Coke Industries um, recently in the last two years or so instituted a ban the box, which is which is on an application. Um, basically, it says, "Have you ever been convicted of a felony?" And if you check that box, yes, um, I. You can reasonably assume ninety nine percent of the time that that hiring manager is going to discard that application. And that is one of the things, one of the, one of the many, many uh, myriad things 
that makes it harder for someone who is back out in society to be able to improve their lives. And so, yeah, they ban that in, in the business practice. And we have we have spent the last year and a half to two years educating activists around criminal justice issues and and seeing great success and having um, having standard sort of conservative activists, uh, which I would say is a bulk of the people who who engage with us, um, embrace these issues and embrace this notion of of, of criminal justice reform, certainly. Right. Um, I know that you did, just recently did a show with uh, Caleb Franz, a good friend of ours here at Muddy Waters Media, uh, on his show, Mill Liberty. Uh, he also has his nonprofit, the Mill Liberty Initiative, and one of the projects they're working on is the Reintegration Project, um, which I've got certain ties to as well. Um, but in it, they are going around trying to find private businesses. Uh, private businesses that are willing to hire nonviolent felons uh, so that way they can get reintegrated in so- into society. Um, it's This is the sort of example that I think many of us need to be setting uh, when we're going out talking about liberty and talking about what we want to see in the world. I, I, I think that Caleb is actually doing it on shoestring budget. Like, I know he is doing everything himself, working very hard at it. Um, and it is that kind of, uh, example that he is setting that I think many people in the movement need to be looking at because he's actually going out trying to do things in a free market kind of way without, uh, using the government intervention. And, and that does two things. And and I think what Caleb is trying to do is, is laudable, and I think he will find some success there. It does two things. It allows us to message. You know, we've been talking about how to message these ideas. It, 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 it allows us to message on these issues by putting a, putting a face to these issues, by saying, look, uh, you know, I was, I was recently at an event in Phoenix, a criminal justice reform event, where they brought um, members of the four key institutions to the table, and the one who represented business said basically that there was a consortium of a hundred small businesses in the Phoenix Valley who are all interested in hiring people as they return to society um, from, from incarceration. And, and just that opportunity, either there in Phoenix or with what Caleb is doing with his initiative is, is empowering people. And it allows us again, one to message and two, to actually put our money where our mouth is or, or to, or to show that these policies and these principles work in practice. And so when somebody sees that there's a business partnering with something like the Maliberty Initiative or, or some other similar organization um, and it's, it's, it's being successful, then people, people change their minds or people think about a policy in a different way. And particularly as it has been so popular in the last six months, really, uh, to talk about criminal justice reform, that is one of the, one of the many, one of the hundreds of ways that people are um, are showing that that criminal justice reform can work uh, if we if if every institution is engaging in their beneficial role, um, and so that is with 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 Caleb, it's it's that community element, but it's partnering with businesses, and it, it possibly might even grow into providing people with education. You know, there's there's when you're in prison, when you're in prison for uh, a number of years, you some of your social skills. Uh, are eroded, right. and you're basically you you are to be quite frank. You're engaging and interacting with people who are 
uh, had criminal intent when they came in, and, and it likely fosters uh, a criminal economy. And so to, to uh, work to re-socialize or to uh, teach people behavior that isn't antisocial, it's not just, and we talk about empowering recently incarcerated people with the hard skills, like being a carpenter or uh, a mechanic or something like that, but they're also soft skills, like how to de-escalate a disagreement in the workplace rather than, um, than resorting to physical violence. There is interacting with people of different socioeconomic status um, so that so that you work in harmony, uh, working with people of, of different backgrounds and others. And so there are a lot of those soft skills that um, that we we are also that entities are also looking to empower people and train them to to engage. So, yeah, there's so much going on. And what, Ca- you know, what Caleb is doing is is a is a not insignificant. It, it, and by that, I mean, it is it, it has the capacity to be very impactful. Um, drop in that bucket of overall advancing society uh, toward one of mutual benefit. Yeah. Um, we, the, the last time I was in jail, I, I've never been to prison, but the last time I was in jail, um, which was, God, six years ago now, six, seven years ago, uh, was in Tennessee. And what you would see, what I saw when I was in there that time, uh, I was in a huge cell block and I was in a huge cell block and you definitely could see the people that were trying to get away from that lifestyle. And then the people who were trying to cultivate that lifestyle, they had sort of coordinated cordoned off into two separate groups in this large cell block that had like 75 people in it. Um, it was, a uh, it was definitely a real learning experience for me. One that I didn't speak a lot during, which is very bizarre for me. Um, I just kind of sat back and I was like, I'm just for the, however long I'm going to be stuck in here, I'm just going to try to keep my head down. Um, so the social skills absolutely will erode off, especially if you're somebody like me, who's just like, okay, I'm just going to keep my head down, not going to cause any trouble. I just sat there silently uh, reading whatever prison manual they gave me, or you had the other people that were working on plans on how they were going to better their lives whenever they got out. And then you had the other people who I think were planning on being there for a long time, planning their way to make their stay as easy as possible, even though it may not have been in the most ethical way. Um, so it's easy to see how that can happen after an extended stay, which is why being able to have access to some sort of education, especially the social aspect, uh, is very important when you're in. Well, we, we talk a lot about um, evidence-based solutions to the criminal justice situation. And, and evidence shows this is, and, and this is something we didn't really talk about at the beginning, but but I think it's something that we are constantly reminded of is conservatives and libertarians oftentimes communicate with facts and figures. And we say, look, here are all the facts, you know, believe what believe my position. And we have to be able to weave those facts into the stories we tell. But so 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 let's look at it. We use evidence based um, research that shows that for every one dollar invested in reentry programs, in education, in the, in the prison system, 
in opportunities for inmates to improve their lives. For every $1 invested, you see up to $5 in savings for reincarceration. So uh, I was the reason I have these figures is I was recently in Little Rock, Arkansas for a criminal justice reform event. And uh, the average length of time people spend in the Arkansas uh, penal system is uh, four years and 11 months. So 90, 90 or 95 percent of people are getting out. Um, on average, they're spending almost five years in, in prison. And Arkansas spends twenty two thousand dollars a year um, on each each inmate. And so on average, you're already burdening the state to the tune of one hundred thousand dollars. So wouldn't you wouldn't we like a society, especially as people who are limited government or conservative or libertarian, wouldn't we like a society that saves money rather than constantly reincarcerating the same person? And, and, and I want to tell a story about this. There's a guy uh, there's a guy currently back in prison named Matthew Charles and Matthew in his late teens and early 20s in the in the early to mid 90s committed some pretty heinous crimes uh, back to back. And he was ultimately sentenced to 35 years in prison. And, um, and as he entered prison, he immediately began to reform his life. He, he found faith. He started, you know, studying. He was reading books in the prison library. He was helping other inmates with their appeals processes. Um, and uh, in 21 years, after having served 21 years of that sentence, Matthew Charles was released by a federal judge uh, by the name of Kevin Sharp in the Middle Tennessee District, who said, it is very clear to me, uh, and this is from, from the judge, very clear to me that Matthew has, um, has righted his situation. He has corrected his life. Um, he, he, is, he, is, he is preparing himself to become a productive member of society. And, and Kevin Sharp at the time was a federal judge, and he made the decision to release Matthew Charles 14 years early. And Matthew spent two years in Nashville. He got a job. He got a place to stay. He had, a, he had transportation to and from work. He got a girlfriend. He was volunteering his time at the food bank. And two years into his freedom, where he had caused, he, he was not a threat to society. He caused no trouble in that, in that period of freedom. U.S. attorneys said, unfortunately, Mr. Charles, you haven't served your entire sentence. And they sent, in May of this year, they sent him back. Um, and if there is any story that we should be highlighting about how the criminal justice system should work, it is the story of Matthew Charles and how he really sought to improve his life and in turn, when he was in prison, improved the lives of those around him. And when he was released, he further went on to prove that he had, he had corrected himself. Um, so when we talk about these issues, when we, and especially when we talk about criminal justice reform, we want to find these individuals who, and look, look, I know Matthew Charles is not the rule. He is the exception to the rule in many instances, but we should, we should reward that kind of behavior. And we should encourage other people to say, if you improve your life, if you prove to us uh, that you are going to, to be released into society and, 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 and not be a threat, not engage in antisocial behavior and activity, then we'll release you. And, and, and I think that is what, you know, we sort of dancing around it, but the first step act, which the president signed in the last week or two, 
um, is really going to provide that opportunity. And, 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 it, and it is in exactly what it sounds. It is a first step in reforming a system that for too long has, uh, has, has been, quote, tough on crime, but not smart on crime and not smart on taxpayers. And so I think um, many states, including a big red state like Texas, including Georgia and including many others, have engaged in, in criminal justice reform legislation in the last 10 years. And we've, we've got now enough data to prove that many of these programs work. And so they're being implemented, hopefully at the federal level, and hopefully this will expand into greater reform efforts. Right. That's, I mean, I, I hadn't heard about Matthew Charles and that's an, I, that's just mor- moronic in my opinion that they would do that. Um, that you could, you can't see my face right now, but everybody that's watching this video can. But when you told me that the, uh, when the fed said that he had to go back to prison, like the look on my face was pure heartbreak. Uh, well, and, 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 you know, to, to, to tie a bow in that story, the, the federal judge who, who released him, Kevin Sharp, uh, who, by the way, was appointed uh, a lifetime appointment. You, you, he's a federal judge for the rest of his life. He was so angry at the system that, that, that tied his hands uh, and made him in it, unable to provide this sort of relief that he resigned his judgeship and is now working He's been to the White House a number of times um, working not only on Matthew Charles issue, but on the broader issue of criminal justice reform. And so it is it is infuriating. The judge who convicted or excuse me, the judge who sentenced Weldon Angelos, who was sentenced to 55 years in prison for selling three hundred and fifty dollars worth of marijuana in Utah. Right. Some of those uh, instances while in possession of a firearm um, sentenced at Weldon to 55 years and immediately in his sentencing statement said this is a ridiculous sentence. Um, it sentences not only you to to spending most of your life in prison, but it sentences your family in a lifetime without a father and a brother. Um, and, and ultimately, Weldon was, was released uh, during the Obama administration. And he now, you know, talk about this virtuous cycles of mutual benefit, now Weldon is traveling the country, engaging in criminal justice reform conversations and showing showing people that it can that it can be um, successful. And so I think, again, as people who believe in liberty and limited government, being able to humanize those stories, humanize public policy, allows us to show, hey, this is a good policy, or hey, this isn't a good policy. Um, and, and I think that we should be we should be more interested in finding those and personalizing those stories so that more people say, you know what, that makes sense. And that's the common sense thing to do, which I think so many of the policies that we we advocate and engage in are right. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for coming on. That's just about all the time we have for today. Do you have anything you want to pitch plug promote right before we uh, head out? You know, the grassroots leadership Academy is in 36 States with Americans for prosperity foundation. And if your listeners are interested in our programming, I know we're in Florida where you broadcast, we're in Tennessee where I am now we're in 34 other States. Um, you can find us at grassrootsleadershipacademy.org. Uh, we are on Twitter and Instagram at GLA Training. Uh, we are also on Facebook. Just search Grassroots Leadership Academy. And then if you want to follow along with, with my hijinks and antics across the country, um, I'm, I'm on most social media platforms at Matthew Hurt. 
which is a total of four T's, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-H-U-R-T-T. And with that, I hope to see you and your listeners on the road as I travel the country advancing um, freedom and opportunity. And I will say that I, I follow you on most social media platforms, and it's actually quite entertaining for anybody out there. Um, <laughs> for everybody else, thank you all for tuning in. Definitely appreciate it. Um, remember, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash muddied waters of freedom. You can find us on the Instagram at muddied underscore waters, or you can find us on uh Twitter. No, sorry, man. I just totally messed that up on Facebook at muddied waters of freedom at uh, Twitter at muddied underscore waters at Instagram at, at muddied waters of freedom, or you can find this in every episode at muddied waters of freedom.com. Thank you to the narcissist cookbook, which is another Matt. This is a very Matt heavy episode today. Uh, the narcissist cookbook for the music at the beginning and the end of this episode. And uh, remember people, uh, get back to writing because it is the easiest way that we can make a difference. I am, I am, I am swinging from a seven-story window, throwing parties in a ten-by-seven cell. It's a stunning the legs I'll go to convince the whole damn world I don't need anybody's help. Yeah, I am. If there's room enough for one, there must be room enough for two. I'll sail the good ship you into the sunset. Sipping on savory water till my liver turns blue. Yeah.